Chapter Six of Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Suvestra. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winterout. Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Suvestra, translated by Cranston Metcalf. Chapter Six, Fantomas. It is death. Hurrying back toward the chateau with the sergeant, Juve ran into Monsieur de Presles outside the park gate. The magistrate had just arrived from Brive in a motor-car which he had commandeered for his personal use during the last few days. "'Well,' said Juve, in his quiet, measured tones, "'have you heard the news?' And as the magistrate looked at him in surprise, he went on. "'I gather from your expression that you have not. "'Well, sir, if you will kindly fill up a warrant, "'we will arrest Monsieur Charles Rambert.' Juve briefly repeated to the magistrate what the sergeant had reported to him, and the sergeant added a few further details. The three men had now reached the foot of the steps before the house, and were about to go up when the door of the chateau was opened, and Dolon appeared. He hurried toward them with unkempt hair and haggard face, and excitedly exclaimed, "'Didn't you meet the Rambert's? Where are they? Where are they?' The magistrate, who was bewildered by what Juve had told him, was trying to form a coherent idea of the whole sequence of events, but the detective realized the situation at once and turned to the sergeant. The bird has flown, he said. The sergeant threw up his hands in dismay. Inside the hall, Juve and Monsieur de Presles ordered alone to give them an exact account of the discovery made by Therese in the course of the previous night. Well, gentlemen, said the old fellow, who was greatly upset by the discovery of the murderer of the Marquise de Langrune, when I got to the chateau early this morning, I found the two old servants, Marie and Louise, entirely occupied attending to the young mistress. Marie slept in an adjoining room to hers last night, and was awakened about five o'clock by the poor child's inarticulate cries. Mademoiselle Therese was bathed in perspiration, her face was all drawn, and there were dark rings under her eyes. She was sleeping badly and evidently having a dreadful nightmare. She half woke up several times, and muttered some unintelligible words to Marie, who thought that it was the result of overexcitement. But about six o'clock, just as I arrived, Mademoiselle Therese really woke up, and bursting into a fit of sobbing and crying, repeated the names of her grandmother, and the Rambert's, and the Baron de Vibray. She kept on saying, The murderer! The murderer! and making all sorts of signs of terror, but we were not able to get from her a clear statement of what it was all about. I felt her pulse and found she was very feverish, and Louise prepared a cooling drink, which she persuaded her to take in about twenty minutes. It was then nearly half-past six. Mademoiselle Therese quieted down, and managed to tell us what she had heard during the night, and the dreadful interview and conversation between Monsieur Rambert and his son, which she had seen and overheard. "'What did you do then?' inquired Monsieur de Presles. "'I was dreadfully upset myself, sir, and I sent Jean, the coachman, to Saint-Jaurès to fetch the doctor, and also to let Sergeant Doucet know. Sergeant Doucet got here first. I told him all I knew, and then I went upstairs with the doctor to see Mademoiselle Therese. The magistrate turned to the police sergeant and questioned him. "'Directly Monsieur Delon told me his story,' the sergeant replied. "'I thought it was my duty to report to Monsieur Juve, who I knew was not far from the chateau on his way to Verrières.' Monsieur Juve told me last night that he meant to explore that part in the early morning. I left Morand on duty at the entrance to the chateau with orders to prevent either of the Rambert's from leaving. 
And Morin did not see them going away, the magistrate asked. Juve had already divined what had happened, and replied for the sergeant. Morin did not see them go out for the obvious reason that they had left long before, in the middle of the night, directly after their altercation, in a word, before Mademoiselle Therese woke up. He turned to the sergeant. What has been done since then? Nothing, inspector. Well, sergeant, said Juve, I imagine his worship will order you to send out your men at once after the runaways. As a matter of courtesy, he glanced at the magistrate, as if asking for his approval. But he only did so out of politeness, for he took it for granted. Of course, said the magistrate. Please do so at once. The sergeant turned on his heel and left the hall. Where is Mademoiselle Therese? Monsieur de Preil asked Delon, who was standing nervously apart. She is sleeping just now, sir, said the steward, coming forward. The doctor is with her, and would rather she were not disturbed if you would have no objection. Very well, said the magistrate. Leave us, please. And Delon also went away. Juve and Monsieur de Preil looked at one another. The magistrate was the first to break the silence. So it is finished, he remarked. So this Charles Rambert is the culprit? Juve shook his head. Charles Rambert? Well, he ought to be the culprit. Why that reservation? inquired the magistrate. I say ought to be, for all the circumstances point to that conclusion, and yet in my bones I don't believe he is. Surely the presumptions of his guilt, his pseudo-confession, or at least his silence in face of his father's formal accusation, may make us sure he is, said Monsieur de Preil. There are some presumptions in favor of his innocence, too, Juve replied, but with a slight hesitation. The magistrate pressed his point. Your investigations formally demonstrated the fact that the crime was committed by some person who was inside the house. Possibly, said Juve, but not certainly. The probabilities do not allow us to assert it as a fact. Explain yourself. Not so fast, sir, Juve replied. And getting up, he added, There is nothing for us to do here, sir. Shall we go up to the room Charles Rambert occupied? Monsieur de Preil followed the detective, and the two men went into the room, which was as plainly furnished as that of any young girl. The magistrate installed himself comfortably in an easy chair and lighted a cigar, while Juve walked up and down, scrutinizing everything with quick, sharp glances, and began to talk. I said not so fast just now, sir, and I will tell you why, in my opinion, there are two preliminary points in this affair which it is important to clear up in the nature of the crime and the motive which can actuate the criminal. Let us take up these two points, and first of all ask ourselves how the murder of the Marquise de Langrune ought to be classified in the technical sense. The first conclusion, which must be impressed upon the mind of any observant person who has visited the scene of the crime and examined the corpse of the victim is, that the murder must be placed in the category of crapulous crimes. The murderer seems to have left the implicit mark of his character upon his victim. The very violence of the blows dealt show that he is a man of the lower orders, a typical criminal, a professional. What do you deduce that from, Monsieur de Preil inquired? Simply from the nature of the wound. You saw it as I did. Madame de Langrune's throat was almost entirely severed by the blade of some cutting instrument. The breadth and depth of the wound absolutely prove that it was not made with one stroke. The murderer must have gone amok and dealt several blows, have gone on striking even when death had finished his work, or at least was quite inevitable. 
That shows clearly that the murderer belongs to a class of individuals who feel no repugnance for their horrid work, but who kill without horror and even without excitement. Again, the nature of the wound shows that the murderer is a strong man. You no doubt know that weak men with feeble muscles strike deep by choice, that is to say with a pointed weapon and aiming at a vital organ, whereas powerful murderers have a predilection for blows dealt superficially, and for broad, ghastly wounds. Besides, that is only following a natural law. A weak man finesses with death, tries to make sure of it at some very precise point, penetrating the heart or severing an artery. A brutal man does not care where he hits, but trusts to his own brute strength to achieve his purpose. We have next to determine the sort of weapon with which the murder was committed. We have not got it at any rate up to the present. I have given orders for the drains to be emptied, and the pond to be dragged, and the shrubberies to be searched. But whether our search is crowned with success or not, I am convinced that the instrument was a knife, one of those common knives with a catch-lock that Apaches always carry. If the murderer had had a weapon whose point was its principal danger, he would have stabbed, and stabbed to the heart, instead of cutting, but he used the edge, the part of a knife that is most habitually used, and he actually cut. When the first wound was made, he did not strike anywhere else, but continued working away at the wound and enlarging it. It is a point of capital importance that this murder was committed with a knife, not with a dagger or stiletto, and therefore this is a crapulous crime. And what conclusion do you draw from the fact that the crime is a crapulous one? The magistrate proceeded to inquire. Merely that it cannot have been committed by Charles Rambert, Juve answered very gravely. He is a young man who has been well brought up, he comes of very good stock, and his age makes it most improbable that he can be a professional criminal. Obviously, obviously, murmured the magistrate, not a little embarrassed by the keen logic of the detective. And now let us consider the motive or motives of this crime, Juve continued. Why did the man commit this murder? Doubtless for purposes of robbery, said the magistrate. What did he want to steal, Juve retorted. As a matter of fact, Madame de Langrune's diamond rings and watch and purse were all found on her table, in full view of everybody. In the drawers that had been broken open I found other jewels, over twenty pounds in gold and silver, and three banknotes in a card case. What is your view, sir, of a crapulous robber who sees valuables like that within his reach, and who does not take them? It is certainly surprising, the magistrate admitted. Very surprising, and goes to show that although the crime in itself is a common sordid one, the criminal may have had higher, or at any rate different, aspirations from those which would lead an ordinary ruffian to commit murder for the sake of robbery. The age and social position and personality of Madame de Langrune make it very unlikely that she had enemies, or was the object of vengeance, and therefore, if she was got rid of, it was very likely that she might be robbed, but robbed of what? Was there something more important than money or jewels to be got? I frankly admit that although I put the question, I am at a loss how to answer it. Obviously, murmured the magistrate again, still more puzzled by all these logical deductions. Juve proceeded with the development of his ideas. And now suppose we are face to face with a crime committed without any motive, as a result of some morbid impulse, a by no means uncommon occurrence, monomania or temporary insanity. In that case, although in consequence of the crapulous nature of the crime, 
I had previously dismissed the very serious presumption of guilt attaching to young Rambert, I should be inclined to reconsider my opinion and think it possible that he might be the culprit. We know very little about the young fellow from the physiological point of view. In fact, we don't know him at all. But it seems that his family is not altogether normal, and I understand that his mother's mental condition is precarious. If for a moment we regard Charles Rambert as a hysterical subject, we can associate him with the murder of the Marquise de Langrune without thereby destroying our case that the crime is a crapulous one. For a man of only medium physical strength, when suffering from an attack of mental alienation, has his muscular power increased at least tenfold during his paroxysms. Under such influence as that, Charles Rambert might have committed murder with all the fierce brutality of a giant. But I shall soon be in possession of absolutely accurate knowledge as to the muscular strength of the murderer, Juve proceeded. Quite lately, Monsieur Bertillon invented a marvelous dynamometer which enables us not only to ascertain what kind of lever has been used to force a lock or a piece of furniture, but also to determine the exact strength of the individual who used the tools. I have taken samples of the wood from the broken drawer, and I shall soon have exact information. That will be immensely important, Monsieur de Prail agreed. Even if it does away with our present certainty of Charles Rambert's guilt, we shall be able to find out whether the murder was committed by any other occupant of the house, still assuming that it was committed by some member of the household. With regard to that, said Juve, we can proceed with our method of deduction and eliminate from our field of observation anybody who has a good alibi or other defenses. It will be so much ground cleared. For my own part, I find it impossible to suspect the two old maidservants, Louise and Marie. The tramps, whom we have detained and subsequently released, are too simple-minded, elementary people to have been capable of devising the minute precautions which demonstrate the subtle cleverness of the man who murdered the Marquise. Then there is Delon, but I imagine you will agree with me in thinking that his alibi removes him from suspicion, more especially as the medical evidence proves that the murder was committed during the night, between two and three o'clock. Only Monsieur Etienne Rambert is left, the magistrate put in, and about nine o'clock that evening he left the Dorsay station in the slow train which reaches Verrières at 6.55 a.m. He spent the whole night in the train, for he certainly arrived by that one. He could not have a better alibi. Not possibly, Juve replied. So we need only trouble ourselves with Charles Rambert. And warming up to the subject, the detective proceeded to pile up a crushing indictment against the young man. The crime was committed so quietly that not the faintest sound was heard, therefore the murderer was in the house. He went to the Marquise's room and announced his arrival by a cautious tap on the door. The Marquise then opened the door to him and was not surprised to see him, for she knew him quite well. He went into her room with her and... Oh, come, come, Monsieur de Prail broke in. You are romancing now, Monsieur Juve. You forget that the bedroom door was forced, the best proof of that being the bolt which was found wrenched away and hanging literally at the end of the screws. "'I was expecting you to say that, sir,' said Juve with a smile. "'But before I reply, I should like to show you something rather quaint.' He led the way across the passage and went into the bedroom of the Marquise, where order had now been restored. The dead body had been removed to the library, which was transformed into a chapelle ardente, and two nuns were watching over it there. 
Have a good look at this bolt, he said to Monsieur de Prail. Is there anything unusual about it? No, said the magistrate. Yes, there is, said Juve. The slide bolt is out, as when the bolt is fastened, but the socket into which the slide bolt slips to fasten the door to the wall is intact. If the bolt really had been forced, the socket would have been wrenched away too. Juve next asked Monsieur de Prail to look closely at the screws that were wrenched halfway out of the door. Do you see anything on those? The magistrate pointed to their heads. There are tiny scratches on them, he said, rather hesitatingly, for in his inmost heart he knew the detective's real superiority over himself. And from those I must infer that the screws have not been wrenched out by the pressure exerted on the bolt, but really unscrewed, and therefore... And therefore, Juve broke in, this is a mere blind, from which we may certainly draw the conclusion that the murderer wished to make us believe that the door was forced, whereas in reality it was opened to him by the Marquise. Therefore, the murderer was personally known to her. The murderer was personally known to her, he repeated. Now I should like to remind you of young Charles Rambert's equivocal behavior in the course of the evening that preceded the crime. It struck President Bonnet and shocked the priest. I also recall his hereditary antecedents, his mother's insanity, and finally, Juve broke off abruptly, and unceremoniously dragged the magistrate out of the room and into Charles Rambert's bedroom. He hurried into the dressing room adjoining, went down on his knees on the floor, and laid a finger to the middle of the oilcloth that was laid over the boards. "'What do you see there, sir?' he demanded." The magistrate adjusted his eyeglass, and looking at the place indicated by the detective, saw a little black stain. He wetted his finger, rubbed it on the spot, and then, holding up his hand, observed that the tip of his finger was stained red. "'It is blood,' he muttered. "'Yes, blood,' said Juve. "'And I gather from this that the story of the blood-stained towel which Monsieur Rambert Sr. found amongst his son's things, and the sight of which so greatly impressed Mademoiselle Therese, was not an invention on the young lady's part, but really existed, and it forms the most damning evidence possibly against the young man. He obviously washed his hands after the crime from the water in the tap over this wash-hand basin here, but one drop of blood falling on the towel and dripping onto the floor has been enough to give him away. The magistrate nodded. It is conclusive, he said. You have just proved the demonstration, Monsieur Juve, that Charles Rambert is the guilty party, it is beyond argument, it is conclusive, conclusive. There were a couple of seconds of silence, and then Juve suddenly said, no. No, he repeated, it is quite true that we can adduce perfectly logical arguments to show that the murder was committed by some member of the household, and that, therefore, Charles Rambert is the only possible culprit. But we can adduce equally logical arguments to show that the crime was committed by some person who got in from outside. There is nothing to prove that he did not walk into the house through the front door. The door was locked, said the magistrate. That's nothing, said Juve with a laugh. Don't forget there isn't such a thing as a real safety lock nowadays, since all locks can be opened with an outside key. If I had found one of the good old-fashioned catch locks on the door, such as they used to make years ago, I should have said to you, nobody got in, because the only way to get through a door fastened with one of those locks is to break the door down. But here we have a lock that can be opened with a key. 
Now the key does not exist of which one cannot get an impression, and there is not such a thing as an impression from which one cannot manufacture a false key. The murderer could easily have gotten into the house with a duplicate key. The magistrate raised a further objection. If the murderer had got in from outside, he would inevitably have left some traces round about the chateau, but there aren't any. Yes, there are, Juve retorted. First of all, there is this piece of an ordnance map which I found yesterday between the chateau and the embankment. He took it from his pocket as he spoke. It is an odd coincidence that this scrap shows the neighborhood of the chateau of Beaulieu. That doesn't prove anything, said the magistrate. To find a piece of a map of our district in our district is the most natural thing possible. Now, if you were to discover the rest of this map in anybody's possession, then... You may rest assured that I shall try to do so with the least possible delay, said Juve gently. But this is not the only argument I have to support my theory. This morning, when I was walking near the embankment, I found some very suspicious footprints. It is true there are any number of footprints near the end of the Verrier tunnel, where the navvies are at work, but at the other end of the tunnel, where there is no occasion for anyone to pass by, I found that the earth of the embankment, which was crisp with the frost, had been disturbed, showing that someone had clambered up the embankment. The tips of his shoes had been driven into the earth, and I could see distinctly where his feet had been placed. But unfortunately the soil there is so dry that the footprints were too faint for me to hope to be able to identify the maker of them. But the fact remains that someone did climb up the embankment, someone who is making for the railway. The magistrate did not seem to be impressed by Juve's discovery. And pray, what conclusion do you think ought to be drawn from that? he inquired. Juve sat down in an easy chair, threw back his head and closed his eyes as if he were about to indulge in a long soliloquy, and began to express his thoughts aloud. Suppose we were to combine the two hypotheses into one, to wit, that the murderer was in the chateau prior to the accomplishment of the crime, and left the chateau directly it was accomplished. What should you say, sir, of a criminal completing his deed, then hurrying over the couple of miles that separate Beaulieu from the railway, and catching a passing train, and on his way climbing the embankment at the spot where I found the footprints I mentioned? I should say, the magistrate replied, that you can't jump into a moving train as you can into a passing tram, and further, that at night none but express trains run between Brive and Cahors. All right, said Juve, I will merely point out that owing to the work on the line at present, all trains have stopped at the beginning of the tunnel for the last two months. If the murderer had planned to escape in that way, he might very well have been aware of this regular stoppage. The magistrate's confidence was a little shaken by these new deductions on the part of the detective, but he submitted yet another objection. We have not found any traces round about the chateau. Strictly speaking, no, we have not, Juve admitted. But it is clear that if the murderer walked on the grass, and he probably did so, he walked on it during the night, that is to say, before the morning dew. Now everybody knows that when the dew rises in the early morning, grass that has been bent down by any passing man or animal stands up again in its original position, thereby destroying all traces. So if the murderer did walk on the lawn when he was getting away, nobody could tell that he had done so. Nevertheless, on the lawn in front of the window of the room where the murder was committed, I have observed not exactly footprints, 
but signs that the earth has been disturbed at that spot. I imagine that if I were to jump out of a first-floor window onto the soft surface of a lawn and wanted to efface the marks of my boots, I should smooth the earth and the grass around them in just the same way that the little piece of lawn I speak of seems to have been smoothed. I should like to have a look at that, said Monsieur de Preau. Well, there's no difficulty about it, Juve replied. Come along. The two men hurried down the staircase and out of the house. When they reached the patch of grass which the inspector said had been made up, they crouched down and scrutinized it closely. Just by the side of the grass, even overhanging it a little, a large rhubarb plant outspread its thick, dentilated leaves almost parallel with the soil. Juve happened to glance casually at the nearest leaf and uttered an exclamation of surprise and gratification. Gad, here's something interesting! And he drew the magistrate's attention to some little pillules of earth with which the plant was peppered. What is that? inquired Monsieur de Preil. Earth, said Juve, who had swept the top of the leaf with the palm of his hand. Ordinary earth, like the rest ten inches below on the grass. Well, what about it? said the puzzled magistrate. Well, said Juve with a smile, I imagine that ordinary earth, or any kind of earth, has no power to move of its own volition, much less to jump up ten inches into the air and settle on the top of a leaf, even a rhubarb leaf. So I conclude that since this earth did not get here by itself, it was brought here. How? That is very simple. Somebody has jumped onto the grass there, Monsieur de Preil. He has removed the marks of his feet by smoothing the earth with his hands. The earth soiled his hands, and he rubbed one against the other quite mechanically. The earth which was on his hands fell off in little balls onto the rhubarb leaf, and remained there for us to discover. And so it is certain, this is one proof more, that even if the murderer did not get in from the outside, he did at any rate take to flight after he had committed the crime. So it can't be Charles Rambert after all, said the magistrate. It ought to be Charles Rambert, was Jew's baffling reply. The magistrate waxed irritable. My dear sir, your everlasting contradictions end by being rather absurd. You have hardly finished building up one laborious theory before you start knocking it down again. I fail to understand you. Juve smiled at Monsieur de Preil's sudden irritability, but quickly became grave again. I am anxious not to be led away by any preconceived opinion. I put the hypothesis that so-and-so is guilty, and examine all the arguments in support of that theory. Then I submit that the crime was committed by someone else, and proceed in the same way. My method certainly has the objection that it confronts every argument with a diametrically opposite one, but we are not concerned with establishing any one case in preference to another. It is the truth, and nothing else, that we have to discover. And that is tantamount to saying that in spite of the overwhelming circumstantial evidence, and in spite of the fact that he has run away, Charles Rambert is innocent? Charles Rambert is the culprit, sir, Juve replied brightly. If he were not, whom else could we possibly suspect? The detective's placidity and his perpetual self-contradictions exasperated Monsieur de Preil. He held his tongue, and was silently revolving the case in his mind when Juve made yet one more suggestion. There is one final hypothesis which I feel obliged to put before you. Do you realize, sir, that this is a typical Fantomas crime? Monsieur de Preil shrugged his shoulders as the detective pronounced this half-mythical name. Upon my word, Monsieur Juve, 
I should never have expected you to invoke Fantomas. Why, Fantomas is the too obvious subterfuge, the cheapest device for investing a case with mock honors. Between you and me, you know perfectly well that Fantomas is merely a legal fiction, a lawyer's joke. Fantomas has no existence in fact. Juve stopped in his stride. He paused a moment before replying, then spoke in a restrained voice, but with an emphasis on his words that always marked him when he spoke in all seriousness. You are wrong to laugh, sir, very wrong. You are a magistrate, and I am only a humble detective inspector, but you have three or four years' experience, perhaps less, while I have fifteen years' work behind me. I know that Fantomas does exist, and I do anything but laugh when I suspect his intervention in a case. Monsieur de Presles could hardly conceal his surprise, and Juve went on. No one has ever said of me, sir, that I was a coward. I have looked death in the eyes. I have often hunted and arrested criminals who would not have had the least hesitation in doing away with me. There are whole gangs of rascals who have vowed my death. All manner of horrible revenges threaten me today. For all that, I have the most complete indifference. But when people talk to me of Fantomas, when I fancy that I can detect the intervention of that genius of crime in any case, then, Monsieur de Presles, I am in a funk. I tell you frankly, I am in a funk. I am frightened because Fantomas is a being against whom it is idle to use ordinary weapons, because he has been able to hide his identity and elude all pursuit for years, because his daring is boundless and his power immeasurable, because he is everywhere and nowhere at once, and if he has had a hand in this affair, I am not even sure that he is not listening to me now. And finally, Monsieur de Presles, because everyone whom I have known to attack Fantomas, my friends, my colleagues, my superior officers, have one and all, one and all, sir, been beaten in the fight. Fantomas does exist, I know, but who is he? A man can brave a danger he can measure, but he trembles when confronted with a peril he suspects but cannot see. But this Fantomas is not a devil, the magistrate broke in testily. He is a man like you and me. You are right, sir, in saying that he is a man, but I repeat the man is a genius. I don't know whether he works alone or whether he is the head of a gang of criminals. I know nothing of his life. I know nothing of his object. In no single case yet has it been possible to determine the exact part he has taken. He seems to possess the extraordinary gift of being able to slay and leave no trace. You don't see him. You divine his presence. You don't hear him. You have a presentiment of him. If Fantomas is mixed up in this present affair... I don't know if we shall ever succeed in clearing it up. Monsieur de Presles was impressed in spite of himself by the detective's earnestness. But I suppose you are not recommending me to drop the inquiry, are you, Juve? The detective forced a laugh that did not ring quite true. Come, come, sir, he answered. I told you just now that I was frightened, but I never said I was a coward. You may be quite sure I shall do my duty to the very end. When I first began, and that was not yesterday nor the day before, to realize the importance and the power of this Fantomas, I took an oath, sir, that some day I would discover his identity and effect his arrest. Fantomas is an enemy of society, you say. I prefer to regard him first and foremost as my own personal enemy. I have declared war on him, and I am ready to lose my skin in the war if necessary, but by God I'll have his. Juve ceased. Monsieur de Presles also was silent, 
but the magistrate was still skeptical despite the detective's strange utterance, and presently he could not refrain from making a gentle protest and appeal. Do please bring in a verdict against someone, Monsieur Juve, for really I would rather believe that your Fantomas is a creation of the imagination. Juve shrugged his shoulders, seemed to be arriving at a mighty decision, and began. You are quite right, sir, to require me to draw some definite conclusion, even if you are not right in denying the existence of Fantomas. So I make the assertion that the murderer is... The sound of hurrying steps behind them made both men turn round. A postman, hot and perspiring, was hurrying to the chateau. He had a telegram in his hand. Does either of you gentlemen know Monsieur Juve, he asked. My name is Juve, said the detective, and he took the telegram and tore the envelope open. He glanced through it and then handed it to the magistrate. Please read that, sir, he said. The telegram was from the Criminal Investigation Department and ran as follows. Return immediately to Paris. Are convinced that extraordinary crime lies behind disappearance of Lord Beltham. Privately, suspect Fantomas's work. End of chapter 6 Recording by Alan Winteroud Boomcoach.blogspot.com